Well, if you have a Bible, find the book of Hebrews this morning. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm actually really excited about this word that the Lord has for us today. So one of the greatest parts about being a follower of Jesus is that when you become a Christian, you're adopted into the family of God. And and what a family it is. It is one of the largest, loudest, most diverse, and hopefully if we're doing it right, one of the most loving extended families you'll ever see. Because Jesus, he's invited us to take our seats at his banquet table and to break bread together, to experience his grace. And, And what results is sweet fellowship, both with God and with each other. And this invitation to to God's table, it also presents us with an opportunity to learn from one another. I love uh, sitting at the feet of those brothers and sisters in Christ who are different from me. I love hearing their testimonies and, and seeing God and the world through their eyes. I love experiencing how they worship, how they pray, how they love their neighbors. And I really do believe that it's through this mutual sharing, this mutual learning, that the body of Christ matures and builds itself up in love. And with that said, I used to be a campus missionary at university campuses in the San Francisco Bay Area. I worked with an organization called Inner Varsity Christian Fellowship, which was this interdenominational kind of campus mission. And when I was doing that ministry, I really loved and enjoyed working and learning from Catholic students that God brought into our ministry. And it was thrilling to have them there at the table of the family of God. And first off, I I believe that there was no one better during those days than to study scripture with Catholic students. And part of the reason is, is despite their kind of faith in the Lord, kind of regular Bible study and regular even Bible reading was not typically part of their, their practice. So when they got to God's word, when you stuck them into a small group Bible study, it was like the world of the scriptures just opened up to them. They were seeing everything with fresh eyes. The scriptures were real to these students, so alive, so filled with drama, and their kind of excitement and their openness to God's word was just infectious. But what's more, our Catholic students back in those days really stoked in me a deep love for the rhythms and the practices and the spirituality of the early church. In particular, they introduced me to kind of the Christian calendar with all its holidays and remembrances and seasons of preparation. And as far as I can tell, here at Elam, we functionally practice two holidays, Christian holidays. We do Christmas and Easter. Now, yes, we have a Good Friday service and we do light Advent candles, but that's pretty much it. So imagine my surprise one year when we're getting to the end of October and I hear our Catholic students talk about a holiday that I had not spent five minutes ever contemplating, All Saints Day. Now we know that this Monday, tomorrow, many of our kids will be dressing up in cute costumes and they'll be wandering the neighborhoods in search of candy and cavities. 
Because Monday is Halloween. It is All Hallows Eve. Hallows Eve, Halloween. Well, if Halloween is the evening before All Hallows, what is All Hallows? Well, All Hallows or All Saints Day is the ancient Christian holiday for which Halloween was just the kind of weird pregame celebration. And I have no interest this morning in kind of bashing Halloween or, or investigating its pagan origins or any of that, though we're admittedly not much of a Halloween family. Instead, I want to look past Halloween at that forgotten Christian holiday that follows immediately after it, All Saints. And I want us to search the scripture this morning for any insights into this lost rhythm of the Christian life. And as we do, it's my prayer that we might be encouraged by the example of the early church and built up by the testimony of God's word. May we be equipped to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received as God's people. So let's dive in together. But before we do, allow me to pray. Dear God, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us this morning that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that these would not be my words, God, that your spirit would speak through them. Build up your church and encourage us in our calling today. In Jesus' name, amen. So our All Hallows, or All Saints, is a Christian holiday celebrating and commemorating all saints, known and unknown, living and departed, so the next natural question is, what is a saint? Is it a little person that has a halo that hangs above their head? No, a saint simply means a holy one. It means one set apart and sanctified to God. So look around you. Those folks sitting beside you, in front of you, behind you. A great many of them are saints. They are God's holy ones that he has set apart for himself, that he is shaping into the image of Jesus, that he's making into his people for his world so that they might reflect God's glory into creation and, and reflect the praises of creation back to God. It may shock you, but you're in a room of saints, and notice that that title, Saint, has as much to do with God's activity as it does with ours. Saints are not super Christians. They're just those who've committed to follow Jesus as best they can while leaning heavily on his grace and mercy every step of the way. Okay, great. So we threw a holiday for ourselves. <laughs> Woohoo! Feels like a big kind of communal pat on the back. You know, who doesn't love a little acknowledgement and appreciation now and then? But I think a little historical context is helpful here. And to explore this context, I need to introduce you to someone, one of my favorite saints. And yes, after five years of working closely with Catholic students, I needed to pick a favorite saint. And so allow me to introduce you to a Christian brother named Polycarp. It's not an original sketch, but this is what they think he looked like. 
And his name in Greek, Polycarpos, it means rich in fruit or fruitful. And this fruitful believer, he lived in the ancient city of Smyrna. Say Smyrna. It's not a sh, but it's more fun to add extra letters in there. Smyrna in Asia Minor, so that's modern day Turkey. And he lived during the first and second centuries AD. Now, Polycarp was a regular guy who ended up shepherding God's church through a unique moment in kind of Christian history. He started his life as a pagan. He was living in a, in a corner of the Roman Empire there in what is now Turkey that was firmly committed to the worship of Rome and her gods and her emperors. And at some point early in his life, his paths crossed with the apostle John, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John that Dee was talking about in the book of Revelation. And through the ministry of John, Polycarp becomes a Christian And he spent the next several years in just close relationship with the now elderly apostle, learning from him all that Jesus did and said. And he also began to kind of partner with John in that territory of Asia Minor to advance God's kingdom in what was a very pagan place. And before the two parted ways, the apostle John, he anointed and he appointed Polycarp to kind of be the lead pastor, the bishop of God's church there in Smyrna, which was a, an assignment that Polycarp would serve faithfully in for the rest of his days. And it's really, for me, this is the point where Polycarp's story starts to get interesting. Time passes and, and the apostle John, who's the last surviving apostle, dies. And then more time passes and all those who'd ever known an apostle or or heard one speak started to die off as well. Soon Polycarp was left as the last of his generation. He was the last living person to have ever known an apostle, to have ever learned of Jesus firsthand from the lips of one of the twelve. And as a result, Polycarp became a treasure to the church. Everywhere he went, people introduced him saying, this is Polycarp who knew John, who knew Jesus. And standing between these two generations, Polycarp was often called upon to weigh in on on theological disputes within the church. When a guy named Marcion popped up and demanded that the church throw out the Old Testament and reject What he regarded as the cruel God of the Jews, it was Polycarp's authoritative voice that reminded the church that Jesus himself was a Jew and that the entirety of the Old Testament pointed in hope and expectation to Jesus. When a group called the Gnostics started to gain in popularity, they they claimed that Jesus was this angel of light who had come to share secret knowledge that would lead to enlightenment, Polycarp was just key in helping kind of squash that heresy. But at 86 years old, after a lifetime of faithfulness, God still had one more mission for Polycarp. You see, he had been living in a time of relative peace. There was this unofficial truce for almost a generation between the Christians and the pagan Roman authorities. 
But that was starting to end and persecution was again coming to Asia Minor and Christians were being rounded up and they were being brought into the public stadium and they were commanded to either renounce their faith or face a cruel death at the jaws of wild animals. And the crowd had started to get bloodthirsty and they started to chant, death to the atheists, Because ironically, that is what they called Christians because the Christians had no visible gods, no idols. So they said, death to the atheists. And then they started to chant, bring us Polycarp, the kind of most prominent Christian figure in their city. And the church, they loved Polycarp and they they tried to hide him. But as the Roman authorities started to torture folks, a family member gave up his whereabouts. And Polycarp, he knew what was coming. He had been in prayer a few days earlier and he had this vision from the Lord of his pillow lighting on fire. And he took it as a hint from God that his race would end somehow in flames. And now with his location known, it was showtime. And so surrendering to God's will, he, he receives the sh- soldiers that come to the little cottage that the church had squirreled him away to. He received them calmly and quietly. He set a table before them and offered them hospitality before he went with them to the stadium. And as he was leaving, he heard the Lord speak clearly, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. In other words, take courage, put on your big boy pants, because I still have a role for you to play. Yet, you're 86, but your race is not done. So he's brought to the stadium, and, and Polycarp is commanded to say, away with the atheists in front of the whole crowd. And feeling cheeky, he gets up and he says, away with these atheists. He only was the only one who got the joke, I think, but it amused him. And then he was promised that he would be released if he would only curse Christ. And he declares this, I have served him 86 years and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Listen with assurance, I am a Christian And he goes on to say, if you want to know more about him, let's make an appointment and talk about him. I'll share the good news. And then they're like, okay, this guy's not buckling. So they threaten him with fire. And Polycarp answers, he says, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and after a little while is snuffed out. You are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment that is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Bring on whatever you want. Take courage, Polycarp, and play the man. Thus the last of his generation, Polycarp was burned at the stake. He became the first Christian martyr that we have a record of since the days of the apostles. And as, the perse- as persecution began to roil the church For the next several hundred years, Christians would gather on the anniversary of Polycarp's death to worship together at his graveside and to intercede on behalf of God's suffering church 
in the spirit of their dearly departed brother who is now at home with Jesus. Because Polycarp had been for them a shining example of what it looked like to follow Jesus faithfully and in the power of the Holy Spirit, even when days get dark. His example encouraged the church to stand firm in their own struggles. Well, so how does this have anything to do with All Saints Day? Well, eventually, more and more Christians were martyred, and so the tradition of conducting special church services on the anniversaries of their death became impractical. So every week, it seemed, they were having some special service because so many folks were sealing their testimony with their blood. So they started, the church started to consolidate all their commemorations of their fallen brothers and sisters. All of the martyrs started to be celebrated on November 1st. And this is what came to be known as All Saints Day. And every year the church would pause and remember to, they would pause and they would remember these departed brothers and sisters in the Lord who were these great examples of what it looked like to persevere even when it was costly. So you may want to ask, well, where is any of this in Scripture? And in response, I would turn you to the book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, the author spends an entire chapter recounting what are the stories of the great Jewish heroes of the faith. He himself begins with the first martyr, Abel, and works his way through the Old Testament, celebrating the men and women who in faith and hope followed God, regardless of the challenges. These are God's righteous ones who lived by faith, who walked after God, who chased after him with confident endurance. And what the author of Hebrews celebrates in chapter 11 is exactly what the church began to celebrate on November 1st, all those many centuries ago. But my question for us this morning is, what do we do with these examples and these testimonies of these believers who've gone before us? Which is why I told you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, because the author gives us insights Once we remember these great stories and we look at these histories of people's faithfulness, what do we do now? So I'm going to read you the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12, but I'm going to read it from uh, the New Testament for Everyone translation. Because I love how it's put here. So verse one, what about us then? We have such a great cloud of witnesses all around us. What we must do is this. We must put aside every heavy weight and the sin which gets in the way so easily. We must run the race that lies in front of us and we must run it patiently. We must look ahead to Jesus. He is the one who carved out the path for faith and he's the one who brought it to completion. He knew that there was joy spread out and waiting for him. That's why he endured the cross, making light of its shame. And he's now taken his seat at the right hand of God's throne. He put up with enormous opposition from sinners. Weigh in your minds just how severe it was. Then you won't find yourself getting weary 
and worn out. The author here is imagining the Christian life as this long distance race. And I personally love this imagery because I used to race track and cross country in high school and I, I still run today. And the author of Hebrews is saying that not only are we running a race, but we have spectators who are looking on those who've run the race ahead of us, who've now gathered to cheer us on towards the goal. And you know, there is something special that happens when you're running a long distance race and you start to see spectators on the course. My father, he never missed a single one of my cross country races. And I could always count on him to be standing at the most difficult part of the course shouting encouragement, usually as I was climbing up the last monster hill. And when I saw him and I heard his voice, it always seemed to give me a boost. His presence would motivate me to push a little harder, to endure the pain a little longer as I headed towards the finish line. I could always count on my dad the other person I could always count on back in high school was my childhood friend, Jackie. Jackie and I raced cross-country together, and she would always be racing uh, in the women's race, so she would finish beforehand, and so she would be there having already completed her race, standing there on the sideline, calling me to sprint that last hundred yards home. And this is the exact imagery that the book of Hebrews is using. The saints, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who started their race before us, have now gathered along the course to witness and to cheer us on. And, and seeing their examples, the cheering crowd of witnesses, they call us to do four, three things. Depends on how you count them. First is this, the cheering crowd of witnesses calls us to rid ourselves of any weight that is holding us down. You see, my least favorite part about running cross country was the uniform, it's the tight little tank top, the short spandex shorts, the, you know, the barely there shorts that would go over that. They were super light. Your shoes, your racing flats were super thin and super light. It was all because, not because it looked fancy, but it was skimpy and light for a purpose. It wanted, they wanted us to be able to run unencumbered, to add no unnecessary weight. And there are lots of things that encumber our Christian walk. All sorts of things. Not even necessarily bad things can weigh us down. Sometimes we're just too distracted. Sometimes we lose track of the fact that, hey, we're running a race. Sometimes our desire to please others or please ourselves pulls us off course. Sometimes financial concerns or, or health concerns or, or concerns about our kids and the future start to burden us and slow us down. And here we, like Polycarp, we're called to strip away all that hinders us 
and to run free of any burden or distraction. It's time to play the man or, or play the woman. It's time for us to run. The second thing that this cheering crowd of witnesses calls us to is to avoid any obstacles that threaten to injure us and take us out of the race. Our course, as you might have discovered, is not without its obstacles. This is real life at all. This is, we're running cross country. There are roots in our path that want to trip us up. There's rocks, there's tree branches, there's puddles obstructing our way. And the biblical author identifies them as these sins that so easily entangle us. He says, if you let sin cling to your life, it will be difficult to run after Jesus. So we're called to deal with our sin directly. He says, confess it to the Lord and put it aside. Turn away from it and ask for God's power to walk forward in new life. Because sin will obstruct your path. It will create distance between you and Jesus. It will make you deaf to his voice and blind to his path. So like those of us who've, or those who've run before us, let's take sin seriously. Repent of it and put it aside in the power of Jesus so that we might run. The third thing that we're called to by this cheering crowd of witnesses, is to run with patient endurance. Our race is not a sprint. Jesus wants us to follow him for the long haul, and each part of our race is just as important to him as what has come before and will come after. Following Christ faithfully in junior high, high school, and college is just as important to to witnessing to my non-believing classmates in college. It's just as important as training up my kids now in the love and the way and the truth of Jesus. It's just as important as being God's light on our little court there off 152nd Street. Every part of the race is important and how we finish is just as important as how we start. And it's funny, I actually think about this call to patient endurance a lot when I swim. Now, admittedly, I have not swam since the pump in Rogers High broke and the swimming pool got closed to lap swimmers. But it used to be part of my regular exercise practice to a few days a week to swim a mile. A mile is about 72 laps in a 25-yard pool. And it's a wonderful experience. I used to pray all this sort of thing when I was swimming. But when you start out, You never really know how your swim is going to go. Sometimes you start out slow. Sometimes you start out fast. It kind of depends on how you're feeling that day. But the worst part of the swim was the middle. That always proved the most difficult for me. And what made it even harder was not just the monotony, not just the pain, but you get in the water and the people that you were swimming alongside start to get out. If you're doing 72 laps, they start to get out by that point. And so you're, you get this little break of your spirit of like, oh, look at that person. They've, they've abandoned the race. 
Maybe I should abandon the race too. And it's interesting. It's, it's something that I identify with in my own Christian life, right? There's a parallel. I've powered through the beginning of my race. I, I followed God through those turbulent years as, as a young man in, in high school and college. I was, yeah, this was me at the beginning of my racing career. And, you know, I was a missionary after college and, and we got married and it was this all excitement and we were sold out for the Lord and things were exciting and we're staying up late, we're sharing the gospel, we're in the dorms, we're doing crazy things, leading missions trips to inner city Oakland and Guatemala and all this fun, crazy stuff at the beginning of the race. And then we started to have kids and I transitioned into ministry in the local church and, and life got complicated and there's responsibilities and we moved from California to here and now I feel like I'm in the middle of my race and this is what I look like now. <laughs> and, and the grind has begun and my life is, is full of responsibilities and relationships and piles of dishes and laundry and, and tricky situations and my slow growth in the Lord. And what does it look like to walk by faith in the midst of this season? More than ever, that call to patient endurance, I feel the real cost of that. You can see the burnout, right, all around us. There's a temptation to, to quit the race, to, to hop out of the pool, to do something more to our liking. And at this point, when patient endurance seems the hardest, the author of Hebrews calls us to look to Jesus. This is a Japanese brother in Christ who races around the world, inspired by this passage as Christ with the cross, to give encouragement to his fellow runners that when the race gets hard, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When you grow weary or faint-hearted, lock your eyes on him. And it's funny, I've been talking about the example of the saints, but if you look closely enough at the lives of these Christian believers, you realize that every single one of them is not pointing at themselves. They're pointing away from themselves towards Jesus. Look to him. Look to him. Jesus is our ultimate example. If we were a cross-country team, he would be the one that's at the top of the ticket, the one who holds the course record. He's run this race before us. He's conquered it, and he's there waiting for us at the finish line with a warm welcome and a hearty congratulations. It reminds me, of the only race I ever won in high school. We were, uh, I was sophomore year. We were at Annaly High School in Northern California. It was an away meet, and I was racing the mile uh, for our JV track team. And uh, unexpectedly, it was going really well. I was leading the race after the first lap, and it looked like I was going to hit my 
fastest time, which I never got under five minutes, but I hit five minutes. And I was shocked that I was in the lead. And I was starting to like freak out and hit the wall mentally and emotionally. And as I got there for that last lap, I saw, as I looked down, Reuben. Now, Reuben didn't go to high school with me. Reuben was the star track runner for Annalie. He was, I think he was the th- one of the top three fastest runners in our whole county. He was the king of this track. He had all the course records. He had been the one who had spent the blood, sweat, and tears practicing over and over on this track. He was the one who had put all the effort in. He was the king of this course. And on this day that I was like, oh, there he is at the end, and he's cheering me on. He's shouting because we knew each other. He's, go, Ryan, go, go. And for me, it was this perfect picture looking back of Jesus. There he is, our greatest example, our greatest saint, the greatest man who ever walked the earth, but he's so much more than that. He's the victorious conqueror, the perfect example, the Savior who offered to share with us his life, his power, his spirit. It says in scripture that we are more than conquerors in Jesus, our King, and through his power in our lives, we can run our races with perseverance. You see, the author of Hebrews and those in the early church, they knew that the Christian life was hard. They knew that following Jesus would require discipline and focus, patience and endurance. They knew that if we were going to run the race successfully, we needed to be filled with faith and hope and have our gaze locked on to Jesus. But they also knew that we were running this race as one team. Yes, we're racing our individual races but we are one team pressing forward toward the same goal. And they knew how important it was for us to hear testimonies of those who've run before us, to watch how those before our time raced on their own courses and in their own conditions. It is good for us to look at their stories to see how they pressed through the pain, how they hurdled obstacles and kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. In the garden house over there, our our older elementary kids, that's what they're doing. They're looking right now at the lives of the saints, of the missionaries and martyrs who've gone before us to be encouraged, to have their strength bolstered when it fails. And I really do believe this holiday of all saints is a tool designed to do just that. It, it functions the same way that Hebrews 11 functions in the book of Hebrews. It invites us, it gives us this challenge to reflect upon the lives of the faithful and to find among those who are running ahead of us some, some dialogue partners and, and some spiritual mentors who, who might spur us forward in Jesus, 
Because sitting at the table of God, there are countless Polycarps. There's countless Amy Carmichaels and Jim Elliots that we can learn from. And many of them have left their writings behind so that we can kind of enter into conversation, so to speak, with them. They've already finished their race and now they're with Jesus, part of that great cloud of witnesses cheering us to the finish line. But you don't have to just look to church history to find a saint. Our church is filled with treasures, guys. People sitting in these chairs next to you that have a lifetime experience of following Jesus through every season, through life's most difficult moments. And you won't find a super Christian. I'm pretty certain those don't exist. But you will find saints who've been running longer than you have. And maybe there's an invitation here for you today to find a a spiritual mentor within our Christian community whether that mentor be one of our lovely seniors or, or someone who's just a few paces ahead of you, a few laps ahead of you in their journey. So they are all Saints Day Challenge. Reflect on the lives of the faithful. Find a dialogue partner. Find a spiritual mentor. But there's a flip side to this as well. Another invitation. Maybe it is time that you joined the chorus of cheering spectators. Maybe it's time that you encourage and invest those who are racing behind you. This is what we're called to in the family of God is to build each other up so that we might run after Jesus with victorious endurance. I love to say that we chase after Jesus joyfully together. So this week, look past the candy and the costumes And remember to join with God's expansive family in giving testimony to God's love and grace and faithfulness and how Jesus is enough. He is sufficient for us to live this life that he calls us to. To love God, to love others, and to be a blessing out in the world in his name. So this week, take some time to pause and to be to reflect and to be encouraged to run your race with endurance to the glory of God. So I want to end with a prayer as the worship team comes up. And the text for our prayer is actually going to be Polycarp's own words. I spent some time this week reading everything, all the writings that he left behind. And as I reflected on his story, I was struck by this little word of encouragement that he wrote to the Christians of Philippi. And may it be a prayer for us as we close. Let us unceasingly cling to our hope and to the down payment on our righteousness who is Christ Jesus. He is the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, who did no sin, nor was any guile found in his mouth. But he endured all things that we might live in him. Let us become imitators of his endurance. If we suffer on behalf of his name, we should give him glory. Through his example, he gave us a model. And we ourselves have put our trust in this. So I appeal to you, people of God, 
to obey the word of righteousness and to endure with all endurance. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.